Welcome to Figuring Out Families by Magellan Media, where we help families be the best they can be. In this, the financial series, we address one of the biggest issues faced by families and speak to experts to get practical advice on how families can avoid the pitfalls when managing their finances, as well as how to recover when financial difficulties arise. I'm David Ahern. My guest today is author, podcaster, blogger, Serena Bird. A former diplomat, among her many talents, Serena is fluent in Mandarin. She's also the author of The Joyful Frugalista. I love that name. We'll hear more about that, I'm sure, where she chats with friends, family, and the famous about frugality, saving, investing, well-being, and living sustainability. If you haven't guessed it, Serena is passionate about helping others with their money, and that's uh, not a bad thing in this uh, day and age. Serena, welcome to Figuring Out Families. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you've had uh, quite a colourful career. We probably should, uh, because this is the first (laughs) podcast together, let people uh, know a bit about you. I read that you quit your job with the Department of Foreign Affairs and trade to help empower people with their finances. Now, that's a big uh, career change. It was a big career change, and it's probably one of the scariest things I've ever done. Probably the second scariest. Uh, The scariest is probably when I was 21, I was studying law at university and had a solid full-time law clerking job at one of the top three law firms. And I quit that to go to China. Uh, Anyway, I ended up being a diplomat specializing in Chinese or in China. So like it it wasn't wasn't such Mm -hmm. a bad decision in the end, but it was weird at the time because back in 1995, not many people were studying Mandarin. It wasn't on our radar the way it is today. Uh, so it was quite a different landscape. Yeah, I mean, the only other person I heard in recent times has been Kevin Rudd, a former Prime Minister. Apparently he was fluent in Mandarin. So it's not something that a lot of people, a lot of Australians would know, I'm sure. Well, it's surprising. There are more who do speak Mandarin than you would think. I'm a little bit rusty at the moment, but I do have some um, Chinese friends who let me speak Mandarin with them. Um, and I do think it's good. It gives you a different aspect to someone's culture and it's, it enables the communication. It's not just because you're speaking Mandarin, but you're saying, yeah. I hear you, I'm listening to you, I'm meeting you halfway, I'm interested in you and your culture. Yeah, a very interesting um, career you had then, being a diplomat. I can't imagine what it's like. I mean, the world as is, is it is at the moment, we know we need all the diplomats we can get, I think. <laughs> I know, and I've disappeared, um, but no, I felt another calling. Uh, yeah, so it's a very interesting trade craft, and uh, sometimes it can feel frustrating because it's not as results-driven as, say, you were manufacturing a product or service. Uh, you know, but that's the value, isn't it? It's like you get war, as we're seeing in the world right now, when diplomacy fails. So while it can seem sometimes frustrating that there's not big results, the more you get people talking, you know, the better the outcomes are going to be. Absolutely. Now, uh, many families have suffered. We've gone through two years of the pandemic so far, mm-hmm. and we re- we've read in a lot of different places that uh, families are struggling financially, businesses close, closing, people being laid off, many struggling just to pay their weekly bills. Incredibly sad, especially when you consider really how well off Australia is. Yeah, it is incredibly sad. And here in Canberra, we've seen the convoy to Canberra, um, you know, protest recently. A lot of very angry and confused people, and it's it's really sad. But what I think is quite different to say March 2020 when this all started is that 
the results of the pandemic have been so unequal. And uh, I really feel that while a lot of why a lot of people are feeling frustrated is that they can see that there's a big divide between the haves and the haves nots. Like those, for instance, who went into this pandemic owning uh, property, um, they've just seen their property uh, values go through the roof. Um, yeah. Those who had share uh, portfolios, while they might have panicked in March 2020, um, you know, they're in a really good place now. And people too who have very niche skill sets, um, there's quite a candidate shortage um, in recruitment for people in those top skill sets. However, a mum and dad business, a mum and dad local business uh, that is uh, dealing with the general public, they're really struggling. Um, and a lot of jobs um, in hospitality are really struggling. Disproportionately, women have been affected by this pandemic. Uh, in 2020, they talked a lot about the pink recession. Well, we're out of recession, but certainly I think it's uh, true to say that a lot of women and often mothers, single mothers, have been disproportionately affected. So I think wow. there's a lot of anger because people see that some people are actually better off and other people are worse off. And I think people are being told, uh, are sick of being told to just pivot and get on with it. I don't know what your sense is, but this is what I'm sort of feeling with from people. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And unfortunately, I, it's something that's going to be with us, I think, for quite a while. Well, pandemics have all, or I shouldn't say pandemics have always been with us, but we have always had, you know, healthcare uh, risks. And I think that's something we often forget about. Um, I visited Taiwan just after the SARS virus. I'm just thinking when that was 2003, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember visiting in October 2003 and and hearing from people who are traumatised because, you know, they've been living in an apartment building with the apartment building opposite had all been in isolation and, you know, they're waving at people through the windows and just how scary that was. So I spoke to people firsthand who'd had that lived experience. And then, of course, there's been avian flu since then. There's been swine flu. There's been a lot of things. So I think these kind of, um, you know, mass viruses have always been a part of life. And there's still, sadly, cases of the bubonic plague. There's still people in the world dying from that. Not many. They're very, very rare. But like that hasn't completely gone either. So I wouldn't say that the pandemic per se is always going to be there. But I think, you know, a certain amount of viruses will always be there. But this has certainly profoundly rocked our foundations for what we know as stability and normality. Yeah, and it is. I mean, my generation's been very lucky. I'm 60-odd now, and I've never had to deal with anything like this. I was too young for the Vietnam War. I've really had a dream run, a baby boomer who really <laughs> can't complain. And then two years ago, we uh, we got the uh, COVID-19. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I found it difficult in parts. Living in Melbourne, mm. we had six, long, six lockdowns, and uh, they weren't easy. I'm in Canberra. We've been relatively um, unscathed, and I have to, scathed, and I have to be careful in a way not to have bragging rights because I'm very well aware of how it's affected people. I do have close family members in Melbourne. Uh, My nana who uh, moved to Mornington Peninsula in her later life, she was from Melbourne originally and she uh, spent many of her retirement years in Queensland and then moved back um, when it became clear she needed extra care. And um, sadly, she passed away in September 2020. And uh, because uh, Victoria, most of Victoria and Melbourne was in lockdown at that, that point of time, she couldn't have visits, visitors for months in the lead up to then. And um, there was no funeral. And so sadly, I didn't uh, get to say goodbye. 
Um, and for those who are in Melbourne, she was um, the original Vinegar Skipping Girl. So um, oh, she right. had posts for that. So it was, I think, when people started to talk about this, particularly one of my aunts who was on radio, I feel that it tapped into that collective sense of mourning that Melbourne was going through at that time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we all know that the skipping girl, the, the sign's still there in Richmond somewhere. Mm. Uh, see it every now and then. So it's very, uh, very famous part of Melbourne. It's a, it's a real landmark. Um, the financial trauma has also sadly increased the mental health problems of many. Uh, how big a problem has it become? I mean, I know in Melbourne, a lot of people have certainly suffered, but I imagine Australia-wide, well, you, you couldn't get to your Nana's funeral. It, it's had a devastating effect on a lot of people. Yes, it has. But like I said uh, at the beginning, it's unequal and that's what makes it worse, I think. Like Australia as a culture, uh, we very much value egalitarianism. Egalitarianism. Yes. No, that is one of the hardest <laughs> words to pronounce. I'm with you, Serena, I'm yes, with you. Yes, we value being equal. We value Correct. everyone having a fair go. And um, to some people, it's not feeling like they had a fair go at the moment. And I think what happened from speaking with financial counsellors who were part of the national um, debt hotline, um, in some ways the very low income were cushioned in 2020 because for the first time, um, because of these COVID hardship uh, payments, they were actually receiving more than they would have on normal Centrelink and allowances. And so that cushioned some of those problems that people were feeling at that point, but it didn't solve those problems. Um, and then when those payments ended, that's when things got to be quite, quite difficult. Um, this time last year, financial counsellors' phones were ringing off the hook because those payments were starting to dry up. And what we've also seen too is an increase in domestic violence um, cases. Interestingly, the numbers um, of um, women killed from domestic and family violence last year actually were at a record low for the last 12 years, um, which is one good thing. But of course, we don't really know whether those numbers reflect the truth of what's happening. Like in some Indigenous communities, for instance, they don't always um, you know, want their numbers counted by, by statisticians in the same way. Um, but certainly the number of cases, the demand for people needing emergency accommodation, which is just not available during um, COVID, uh, support services that weren't available has, has, has shot up through the roof. And of course, aged care is another area which has been very much in the media in recent months, um, which is very much under pressure and people working in, in that sector are very much under pressure as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Quite quite right. You mentioned the haves and have-nots a few times. Mm. Is the gap widening? Has the gap been exacerbated by the pandemic? Look, I see. I think so. I haven't seen recent statistics. There's something called the Gini coefficient, I think, is, is the term. So there is a way that these things are measured, and Australia traditionally has fared quite well in this. Um, but I certainly feel that, you know, a number of the factors, particularly um, the um, incredible spike in um, housing costs, in property costs, um, has really exacerbated that. Um, here in Canberra, where I live, we have record uh, low vacancy rates uh, for rentals, and that's a real issue. And just to put on record, I am a landlord. I have currently three investment properties. One of those I offer at below market rent as part of an affordable housing scheme that's run by YWCA Canberra. So I offer it at 74.9% of the market rent. 
in exchange for some waiver of, of land tax and a few other um, things. Um, and my tenant is a 60-something-year-old woman who has escaped domestic violence. Mm. Now, were this scheme not available, I don't know where she'd find accommodation, to be honest, in such a tight mm. rental market. It's very yeah. difficult. Yeah, no, absolutely. What what else could be done to level the playing field, do you think? I think we, we've got this issue now. We've had two years of the pandemic. We've seen some people doing really badly. Are there any simple solutions? Probably no simple solutions, but are there any solutions you can see? Look, it's a very complex issue. Um, you know, I mean, Jesus said the poor will always be with us. And, you know, that is a sad reality. You know, thousands of years on, we still have the poor with us. But I do think it comes from the compassion with our hearts, really. And I think all of us just need to realise how blessed we are if we are not living in extreme poverty. And um, and it's really easy to sort of, because some people are able, very resilient, right? And they're really able to pivot very quickly. They might have lost, their business might have closed down, but they've been able to pivot very quickly to another business or they lost their job, but then they got a better job. And this happens a lot. But see, not everyone's able to pivot like that. So I think what we really need right now is this deep compassion for everyone um, in our community. And if you see someone who's doing it tough, like the mental health aspects of this, I think are actually even greater than the financial trauma issues. Um, it's really important just to check in with people and ask them if they're okay and see if there's ways that you can connect them to organisations or, or help them. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And as you'd be aware, there's a a national Are You OK Day every year. I think it's held towards right. the end of the year. It re it's something we really should do every day of the year, really. Well, yes, but, you know, we're busy people. Um, you mm. know, in my case, I've, I've got a husband, I've got two kids, I've got three businesses, there's lots of things that are happening. Um, but sometimes you can just sense that, you know, someone's a little off and something isn't quite right. Week before last, I sort of hadn't heard from a friend for a while and someone said, yeah, she's not tracking that well. She's had, had a number of things on, including um, having a broken uh, wrist so she couldn't do a lot of things, uh, which is very upsetting. You know, coming out of COVID, you want to be getting back into doing your work and she couldn't. And yeah. so, you know, I made that time then to go and see her and catch up and it was one of the best things I could have done. Like, you know, I was feeling very anxious at my long to-do list and went, I don't have time for this. I've got more important things to do. Um, but once I actually went there and met with her, it was really uplifting for me and um, I just really reaffirmed that we do have to make that time um, for those people. If we want the community to still be there for us when we're in need, we have to put it back forward and to sustain that. Yeah, and society would be a worse place if uh, we lost that sense of community. And I think we, we have been losing it a bit in recent decades, and that, that's a very sad thing. Well, the whole the, one of the things about COVID too is that some people have lost their social skills. Now, you know, it's great. Like, you know, there's so many blessings about technology. You know, we're able to record with you in Melbourne and me in Canberra here today because of the blessings of technology and I know that technology for us didn't quite work the first time and so this is our second take at recording and that's you, all good. You don't have to tell tell everyone that, Serena. <laughs> Sorry, you're perfect. So everything that's worked the first it. time. That's totally yeah. perfect. Um, but, you know, there is this whole issue where a lot of people, particularly young people, are losing their social skills. You know, we've had a um, two years now where babies have been born who haven't had the normal sort of interaction they'd have with other kids their age, with extended family. It's actually quite scary for young children who haven't been exposed to that. 
Um, we've also got university students who haven't been able to have classes online. You know, uh, those university years are often the years where people are very social. I remember being a university student myself. I'm not going to share any stories. They can stay <laughs> in the past. Nothing too bad. But, you know, it's that time where you do go out and socialise and you can't. You know, we've only just had dancing real out here in the ACT, but there's still a lot of fear. Um, and just people in the workplace now, they're just not picking up the phone. They're not going over to someone's desk because they've been distanced for so long. So I think this is a real issue. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Uh, interest rates are likely to start going up, but that happened overseas, uh, America, Britain and other places. Um, that's not going to help families. And we know there are a lot of families that really are on that threshold. I mean, even a, a, a quarter of a percentage interest rate rise will really hit them badly. Um, what can families do to save money? I mean, it, interest rates are going to rise. There's no doubt about that. Look, there's no doubt about that. And that shouldn't come as any surprise, to be honest. We've been enjoying record low interest rates, but we do have a lot of young first home buyers who don't have that knowledge of the sort of high, what is it, almost 20% rates that happened in the late 90s. It was crazy stuff. It was 17% in about 1993. So can you believe that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can. I, re I remember it. I was still at university, but I remember it. Um, and, you know, that came as a real shock. And this is not to scare people, but, you know, the reality is these are record low interest rates. They are not going to stay. And I think there had been some discussion about, you know, 18 months ago saying, oh, this will be here forever and like it won't be. Um, so I think the first thing to do is if someone has a mortgage is to already start paying extra because you're going to have to pay extra anyway once the interest rates go up. So, you know, pretend it's a couple of percentage points above and regularly pay into that. That will then create an emergency fund or a buffer, whatever contingency fund, whatever you want to call it. But you'll have some extra funds there. So if something unexpected happens, like, for instance, uh, expensive dental work, my husband just had to have root canal work, oh. uh, which he was quoted three grand for. I know. Ouch, Ouch. right? Yeah. You know, the car breaks down and you need or you need new tires, you know, that can easily be another two, three grand. Ouch. Um, you know, uh, another COVID outbreak happens and it affects your employment, your husband loses your job, your hours are reduced, whatever. Like there could be any myriad things that could happen unexpectedly. It's really yes. important to pay extra now into your mortgage and save that emergency fund so you're really prepared. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. It's a fine line, isn't it? I, I mean, I lost my job in the recession in the early 90s which is a long time ago, it took about two years to find full-time work. And at the time, I applied for jobs everywhere but got nowhere. And unless you live through that, it's hard to appreciate how bad things can be. If suddenly the jobs dry up, then, then there's nothing there. And you worry. You worry about how you're going to pay your mortgage, how you're going to even shop from week to week. Yeah, it is. Now, I don't have that quite the same lived experience. I was graduating at that time. I actually ended up staying on at university longer. Um, so right. to sort of cushion it a bit. But I remember preparing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, you know, job applications and I had good grades at university and I was scared. So yeah. I do often reflect on that because, you know, most people did land on their feet, but it was a little bit, you know, bumpy at, at the time. Um, and it, you can't guarantee these things are going to be there always. So, um, and like I said before, not everyone is really resilient. In fact, I don't think it's possible to be joyful and happy all the time. Um, you do have to go through that grieving process before you, you move, move back um, forward. But when I wrote The Joyful Frugalista and when it was published, Australia's economy was doing really well. And I used to get asked a lot, but 
like surely it's not fun. Like, like why would anyone be frugal, right? Because it's not <laughs> <Yeah>. fun. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, but then by the end of that year, the bushfires hit and then we had COVID. So within a year, suddenly, you know, the sourdough baking and the jigsaw puzzles and all the things I was doing mm. before all this happened suddenly became really hot commodity. And I do think, you know, it's really people have seen now the value and the importance of choosing a simple and frugal yet joyful and fulfilling life um, because they see now that when you're in a good financial situation, you know, you can weather whatever shocks come your way. Um, mm. Well, you, you hope so anyway. It's a bit, bit like sure. on being on the Titanic. You don't just assume that because you're on a, a big boat, you're going to be safe. You've still got to have life boats and life rafts and you know things can still happen but yeah. you're more likely to be safe because you've yes. got that buffer yeah good point i'm glad the titanic's an interesting analogy because i'm sure they did <laughs> it was indestructible wasn't it what happened it, it sinks, on, sinks on its maiden voyage i mean go figure you can't believe it really um in terms of family saving money though and weekly shopping and whatever are there simple things they can do Oh, look, there's so many. Um, my book's got heaps and heaps of hints. I like to start with food because I just think that from a place of resilience, and particularly this is probably me speaking as a mother to two young boys who were single parenting after going through domestic violence, when you've got a meal on the table and when everyone's fed, you know, you feel like you can cope with anything. And actually it was my aunt who told me this. Um, and in the 90s, once again, high interest rates and um, her husband's uh, business partnership went uh, belly up. And they were in a really difficult position for a while there. They just bought an investment property and things were really tough. And my aunt was an amazing cook and uh, she really got through that. And then they went on and uh, had a, a corner store at Mornington Peninsula, did amazingly well and have now retired into incredible wealth. And she was actually one of my first podcast guests on the Joyful Frugalista. And this was before we went into COVID lockdown. And I think it's important, um, you know, to note that, you know, focusing on one day at a time, one thing at a time can really be, bring huge benefits. But when we're talking about food and food savings, like the average family, now I don't think there's ever, ever any average family. And uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics tells us that different people spend more depending on what state and territory they live. Here in the ACT, we tend to have higher than average um, incomes. But that said, we also have the second largest rates of homelessness in Australia. So it's, it's, it's the haves and haves not so particularly wide here. But right. we spend on average, I think, around about $300 a week. So some of the uh, statistics that have been crunched about savings that families can make shows that about 20% of what we buy, so about one in five bags of groceries, are thrown out. So if you think about that, if you're spending $300 and so yeah. 20% of that, what, that's uh, $60 a week, yep. times it by uh, 52. Um, yes. Yeah, you get a sense of how much savings you can make. So the average family, you know, and once again, there's no such thing really as an average family, but this is just for the, the point of this discussion. You're talking about between $3,000 to $4,500 a year. You can save just by being conscious about what you buy, just by making a shopping list, just for not over-purchasing um, and thinking really critically about some of those things, just for doing that alone. Right. Yeah, no, there are simple things. I mean, we can all be a little bit wasteful at times too. You don't even realise it, but, you know, some food left in the fridge too long because it's past its use-by date. And oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I do it myself and, it, yeah, it's crazy really. You could save a lot of money if you keep on top of it, you know, from week to week. 
yeah, well, my mum always says you work so hard for your money, why just throw it in the bin? But, you know, I'm human and I'm a busy person and you forget things, things are hidden at the back of the fridge. Uh, Oz Harvest yeah. have this new tape now that you can, uh, it's free, they'll give it to you for free, you've just got to pay for the postage. And you just take a bit of this masking tape on and put it on the whatever you want to use up. Because right. um, one of the problems too is often in a household, it's usually the mum who's like, you should eat that, Johnny. And of mm. course, they don't want to. They want to eat something new and more exciting. And then all it, the responsibility falls on mum and it gets thrown out. Exactly. Uh, the bro- broccoli comes to mind when I was young. <laughs> Go to eat the broccoli. It was the one vegetable I really had trouble dealing with. I could eat all the others, but not broccoli. <laughs> but there you go. We all have something, I suppose. Um, can families go somewhere to places for assistance financially? I imagine there are a number of places these days they can yeah. call upon. Yeah, definitely. And I, a good starting place is the National um, Debt Hotline. Um, I was fortunate to do a podcast with a lovely counsellor in Canberra from an organisation called CARE, C-A-R-E, who are part of the national hotline. So there's um, counsellors, financial counsellors in many places. And look, they've seen it all. They've seen it all. They've seen people with, you know, gambling addictions, you know, um, you know, substance abuse addictions, um, family and domestic violence addictions, high net wealth people who just, for whatever reason, um, aren't good with their money, so they've ended up with a lot of debt um, but are too scared and frightened and vulnerable to go anywhere else. Like, they've, they've seen it all. Um, and they're incredibly compassionate. So, you know, if you are finding that you are struggling to sleep at night because you're worried about your debts, you're considering self-harm because you're worried about your debts, or you just don't know what to do, like give them a call and they will help you. They've got some really well-developed, um, easy-to-use budgeting and other tools. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Now, I did ask this question of another guest uh, a couple of years ago, um, but I'd like your take on it as well. I grew up in a family where mum and dad really didn't talk about finances to the mm. kids. They probably thought children just should enjoy being children. But do you think it makes sense to introduce, even as young teenagers, around the dinner table at night talking about money? Because it's one of the, it's the, it might, one of the most important things when you become an adult to learn how to budget. Oh, look, absolutely. And the money story we were told as children really influences how we feel about money. Um, you know, if we were told, you know, money is evil, money is bad, or if your parents argued about money all the time, or you saw your mum or your dad doing it tough, you know, we can't afford this, we can't have this, and then money was also taboo, you didn't talk about it. Like these children grow up with, um, to adults with a lot of baggage about money. Um, and it doesn't have to be like that. Like abundance and prosperity are really important things. And, you know, as you know, the Bible does talk about this too, you know, ask and you shall receive, you know. And, um, knock and the door shall be open for you. Um, you can finish all the rest. I've, I've forgotten. <laughs> oh <my laughs> you but, you know, it's, it's all about abundance and, you know, the whole sure. stewardship parable about, you know, um, uh, different uh, servants being given different money to invest according to their aptitude. So certainly, you know, learning how to have good stewardship with money is not an evil thing. And the more we talk openly about money, um, is it's really important. And you can do tremendous good with money. I'm currently giving away $2,000 as a micro grant. I w- was fortunate to receive money last year, so I'm paying it forward to someone else. And it's just incredibly fulfilling um, and rewarding to do that. In terms of how I am with my own children, you know, we've talked about money from a very, very early age. And 
they get it. Like we'll say, well, you could buy, you know, the cheaper brand at this supermarket or which is a generic brand or you could buy this. Mm. They're actually the same or they're very similar. You know, is it worth paying the extra for this? You've got this amount of money. How are you going to spend things? Have you thought about how you could earn more money? Um, it's just normalizing it as part of our conversations on a daily basis. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it makes perfect sense. And uh, just in my family, without giving away names, not that my siblings probably listen to this <laughs> podcast, but we have six children, three of us are pretty good with budgets, I think, and three are, well, perhaps not so good. But, you know, I think you find that in any family, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's really easy to be judgmental with people and their money. Like, I'm sure we all know someone who we know isn't earning much money and you see them with the flash new car or you see them on the expensive holiday and you see they've bought the yeah. latest doodad. And it's really easy to sort of be a bit negative and judgmental about that. Um, and, you know, I'm a money coach and so I see people come to me with, oh, we're so proud we've just bought this. And the thing is just to zip it. It's not your journey. But what you can do is model to people how that, you know, earning real wealth, real abundance, real savings, real investment comes from work um, over a long period of time. It's from those little savings that then multiply and grow and grow. And to start to talk about your own money journey and why mm. the little, you know, the little sacrifices you make at first then sure. multiply into, you know, big and real and last, long lasting and real wealth. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And I, I don't begrudge people who uh, work hard and make their money. But at the same time, I think people have a responsibility to community and to society generally to put back in different ways. You know, and a lot of people do, a lot of wealthy people do that. And you might not hear how they do it um, and they wouldn't want that, but they do put back in. And uh, really, to me, that's the way uh, society should work. Well, I think there's tremendous uh, joy that comes from giving. And I think the really wealthy people, they do understand this. Um, you know, it's not always, as you said, in the media, like we have this vision of the rich people as being cheats and scoundrels. Um, and that's not always true. Um, no, no. It's not always true. But, you know, it's, it's an individual journey. All I know is from me is that I do get a lot of joy out of being able to provide for my children to be in a safe and secure financial situation and to be able to give back. Yeah, no, absolutely true. That's that's exactly right, Serena. So we're nearly at the end of uh, the podcast, but perhaps to encapsulate some of the main points of what you've spoken about that you, you think are important that people could take away with them today? Um, thank you. That's a tall order. Um, but I'd probably say that if people are experiencing extreme financial problems, to reach out to the National Debt Helpline. This is really important. So. Um, don't feel embarrassed. There's been a lot of people who've rung up at their very experience. They won't judge. They're fantastic. So if you are feeling um, that your financial situation is difficult, um, call out to them. The other thing I want to share is the mantra of what got me through when I was single parenting. Now, I was on a good income, but I had a lot of expenses and I was quite scared, to be honest. Um, and my mantra was one day at a time, one thing at a time. It's really easy to catastrophize, to think about, oh my God, but what if this happens and then this happens and then this happens? And just stop yourself in the moment and go, well, today, this is what I'm doing. Today, you know, this is what's happening and um, just keep it there. And this, the third is that, you know, small savings over a long period of time really do add up. So it's never too late to stay save and that compound interest is just magic. Yeah, no, good point. And uh, your second point too, 
is an excellent point. It's easy to get overwhelmed. I think mm-hmm. we all can at different times. And uh, during the last two years, especially, you can have days where you just think, you know, in Melbourne, when we were locked up and we couldn't go anywhere, couldn't go further than 5K, so I couldn't see my children for weeks and weeks on end. It was very easy to get overwhelmed. Um, but it is important to try and uh, take it day by day. There is always light at the end of the tunnel. As I said, I was uh, unemployed in the early 90s, then found time, found full-time working. So there is. You just have to hang on and try and remain positive. Once again, not everyone is so resilient, but I do find that mantra works because you're just situating it in the present. Um, and then also a lot of research shows that those of us who are able to really find the blessings and focus on the gratitude um, which, of course, is once again, is very much situated in the Gospels. Um, that is really helps. And this is not a, you should be grateful you've got Brussels sprouts for dinner. <laughs> Eat it up <laughs> and feel grateful. Um, but, you know, just to really think, okay, yeah, this has been pretty not fantastic, but, you know, today this is one thing that, that makes me smile. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very good point. It's a good way to finish. Serena, lovely talking to you. Hopefully uh, we'll Thank have you a, so share a few more podcasts together. And uh, until next time, stay safe. Thank you. I'd be delighted to. Thank you.